Good morning. Sorry. That sounded really bad. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I didn't mean you sounded bad. I meant that I sounded bad. Oh, this is just getting worse and worse. Just, just, I know, stop digging. Okay. We're going to take a look at John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, where Jesus has finished his great I am the Good Shepherd discourse, and he's left. It's the ending of that entire section of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, or the first half of 10, that all take place at the Feast of Tabernacles within a 24-hour period, which is actually right about the time frame we're in now, as Day of Atonement is just finished for the Jewish nation, I mean in real time today, and in just another week or two they'll start the Feast of Tabernacles, and here Jesus finishes that in mid-Octoberish or so at the end of verse 21, and then two and a half months pass to the Feast of Dedication. So we'll pick up and read verses 10, 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord, thank you for this truth that you give us, that we as your people are in your hand and no one can snatch us from you. No power of hell and no scheme of man can pluck us from your hand. And it is in that truth that we stand before you and humble ourselves to hear what you would have us know about you and trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's just start with the Feast of Dedication. It's just Hanukkah. What we know as Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication taking place around December 25th. So it's Christmas time in Jerusalem. Only nobody's celebrating Christmas. They're celebrating the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. It's called the Feast of Dedication because that was when the temple was rededicated after its pollution by Antioch Epiphanes. So we celebrate what we know today as Hanukkah, or the Jews celebrate what we know today as Hanukkah. This celebration of rededication of the temple, and more importantly, the rededication in the, of the altar after the retaking of Jerusalem from the Seleucids, or just the Greek rulers, there in 164 B.C., where previously they had come in, Antioch the Fourth of Epiphanes had come into Jerusalem, and he was trying to quell a riot that wasn't actually happening. He erroneously thought something was going on in Jerusalem when there wasn't, and as a result, he came in with a very heavy hand. He came in, he 
he overran the temple in the Jerusalem area. He banned all Jewish practices. He banned Judaism. No temple worship, no sacrifices, no nothing. Don't even sing the Psalms. And then, just to emphasize his point, Antioch Epiphanes desecrated the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. The one where all the holy sacrifices are offered to Yahweh, he puts a pig on it and sacrifices it there and actually turns the temple into a period of of pagan temple worship. It was just awful. It, was, it wasn't just that Judaism was banned and that they could no longer worship Yahweh. He actually turned it into a pagan temple for a few years. Of course, when we think about Hanukkah, we typically think about the miraculous burning of the menorah for eight days with only one day's worth of oil. If you remember the story from the Maccabean period, they come in, they retake the temple, the high priest and the priestly service are looking and they discover that there's no holy oil, olive oil, to burn in the menorah that's supposed to burn 24-7. And the problem is, is that it takes seven days to purify the oil, according to their Jewish practices, so that they can then put it in the menorah. And while they're digging around in the temple, they find one jar of oil that still had the seal of the high priest on it, meaning that it was sanctified and holy and had not, because the seal had not been broken, it was still oil that could be used to burn the menorah. But that's only one day's worth. So they pour the oil in and get started sanctifying oil over the next seven days. And miraculously, this menorah with one day's worth of oil burns for eight days. Now, that's what most of us think about with Hanukkah, because that's what's celebrated in the story that's brought out today about it. However, Hanukkah is much more than a miracle of oil. And in that day, it was a whole lot more than just a miracle of oil and celebrating that. At its core, Hanukkah is a celebration of the independence and deliverance from foreign oppressors, pagan Gentiles who desecrated the temple and turned it into a Greek pagan place of worship and banned all the Jewish worship practices. The celebration of independence from that is what it is. And what's even more significant, as we see, as I'll try to bring out later, is that this occupation by the Greeks was made easier by Hellenist Jews who betrayed the Jewish nation as well as God and embraced these Seleucid rulers and the desecration of the temple. The problem with these Hellenist Jews wasn't so much that they cooperated with the Seleucid rulers. No, it was that they actually betrayed God. They they were worse than just cooperating pragmatists. They were pagan sympathizers. You see, they were the Jewish version of Nazi sympathizers during World War II as the Nazis overran the country. We all can remember and think back to that period when the Nazis would just, with the Blitzkrieg, overrun a nation. And you'd have sympathizers there who would betray their country and betray their countrymen as Nazi sympathizers. 
That's what was happening here with the Hellenist Jews. They were literally betraying the people and Yahweh so that they could just keep their bank accounts. Now, the leaders of the independence movement of this rebellion were the Maccabees. And they were a type of deliverers, the heroes in Jewish history. In that day, in Jesus' day, the Maccabees were looked at as genuine patriotic heroes. And they were a type of deliverers. And just as important as their efforts at Jewish independence was that they were also important in doing good works. And the good works they did during their campaigns to free Jerusalem were often highlighted. So the Maccabeans were held up as patriotic heroes as well as very good work doing persons. By good works, I mean philanthropic work. So I want you to grasp the picture here. By Jesus' day, with Roman rule and everything else politically in Jerusalem, Hanukkah was a nationalistic political independence celebration. It was like the 4th of July and Victory Day from World War II all rolled into one. In the midst of that, and all of those tensions and emotions and this swell of nationalistic thinking, that surrounds Hanukkah with the Roman thumb right on the top of the Jews, they ask the question, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, the deliverer of the people from the Gentiles, tell us plainly. Do you think that's going to start a riot? Do you think there's going to be trouble with the Romans if Jesus says yes right in the middle of Hanukkah? Yes, there is. This is not going to go well for anybody. So they ask it. And the ironies and the allusion to Hanukkah itself are just striking. Here are the Jews celebrating Jewish independence and the rededication of the temple from pagan desecration while looking to condemn the ultimate deliverer from death and sin. He's there to do more than just give them some kind of nationalistic deliverance. He's there to deliver them from the ultimate enemy, the ultimate oppressor, sin and death. Perhaps maybe the more stunning and breathtaking irony to me, though, is how they are remembering the Maccabees and their good works while trying to kill Jesus because of his good works. Because it all starts with him healing people on the Sabbath. We can't have none of that. And if you're going to do that, we're not going to have anything to do with you. They just don't care. They just don't care. This question was never intended to really elicit something that would bring salvation. They knew that if they could get him to say yes, he was the Messiah during the Feast of Dedication, that it would automatically trigger a Roman arrest and him being dealt with. Jesus, though, he doesn't fall for the nationalistic trap that they have set for him in this moment. Instead, we see that Jesus goes back to the sheep and the shepherd imagery he's talked about before to show who are the true followers of Yahweh and who are not. The irony is the Jews here in this moment are acting like the Seleucid sympathizers of the Maccabean period. They're acting like the guys they hate from history. 
That's who they're behaving like. And Jesus just points out that the real sheep of Israel, those who belong to him, will hear his voice and follow him. He doesn't need to lead a revolt to get them to listen and to follow. He doesn't need to start a rebellion to have his disciples follow him. But what's even more stunning and striking here, though, is that while not following for their nationalistic trap that they've set for him, and instead pointing out that the real sheep of Israel listen to his voice and follow him, and that those who aren't his sheep and aren't listening are not really part of the real Israel. In spite of all that, the more stunning and shocking thing is that he says, not only do my sheep listen to me, but they will have eternal life and eternal security. They're like, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Eternal life is what the Jewish hero gives his people. The real Jewish hero is giving them eternal life. One that is secure. Remember this from John chapter 6. Right? We talked about this a long time ago. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This idea that Jesus will hold his sheep and no one can snatch them starts way back in the bread of life discourse. And here Jesus is emphasizing in this festival, dribbling with nationalistic ideas, the true nature of his nation. His sheep are eternally secure. And this idea of snatching out of his hand is against the backdrop of the Maccabeans snatching Jerusalem and the temple out of the Seleucid rulers' hands and reestablishing Jewish independence, one where the pagans could never snatch Jerusalem out of the Jews' hands again. The Greeks never took control of Jerusalem again. It is true the Romans came in later, which is kind of ironic because they made a deal with the Romans to kick the Seleucids out. Be careful in your rebellion who you have allies with. Rebellions make strange bedfellows. But the Seleucids and the Greeks never retook control of Jerusalem. It stayed in the Maccabeans and the Jewish hands until the time of the Roman desecration in AD 70. This is the idea that he is saying, no one can snatch it out of my hand just as no one could snatch it out of the Maccabeans. The eternal security, though, is much greater than the images of symbolism of Hanukkah. It is the very nature of God that gives security. Ironically, maybe not ironically, Jesus didn't create this idea of him holding and no one can snatch it out of his hands. It goes all the way back to Moses at Mount Sinai 
with the people of Israel as recorded in Deuteronomy 32. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he, God, will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 36 through 39. And oh, by the way, whenever God says, I, even I, that's really like, that's kind of like your mother using your full name. Whatever's about to come next, you better hear and better not miss it. And then there's this passage from Isaiah 51. The Deuteronomy passage was about confronting them in their disobedience. But Isaiah 51 comes right in the middle of the entire chapter of 51 about God comforting his people. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that it waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. The one who laid the foundations of the earth, the one who stirs the sea and causes its waves, That is the one who holds us in his hands. This is who keeps us safe in the palm of his hand. The one from whom no one, human or supernatural, can snatch us from his hands. This is who keeps us safe. But wait a minute. Jesus said he was the one holding us in his hands. So is his hand really as strong as God's? Look at the very last words Jesus speaks in this paragraph. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. He makes no bones. We are the same. The one who stirs the waves is me. The one who is holding you in his hand is the same one who laid the foundations of the heavens. I am the same as he. Therefore, I have the same strength. And no one can pluck you out of my hand. None. Not one. No, not one. Human or supernatural. That is his promise. So what do we do with this? I mean, we believe we have eternal life and we are securely in his hand and no one can pluck us out. Okay? That all sounds good. So what do we do with this? I mean, like, do we just like, hey, 
free beer? I mean, no one can snatch us out of his hands, so just go have fun? What do we do with this? We trust his hand. See, intellectually this sounds good. The hard part is believing it. Right? I mean, trust his hand. Trust he can save and keep you. Yet I know that's not really the question in your heart because that's not really the one in mine. I know the real question that many of you are thinking, well, I know if he calls me, I'm safe in his hand. But what if he hasn't called me? Oh, my dear brother and sister, I know that fear. I know that angst. And if God had not called you, you would not care about him. The very fact that you care at all is evidence he has called you. Those who he has not called don't care at all about him or Jesus or anything God says or thinks. They really don't. You know, these pe- you, you have people like this in your families, in your acquaintances. They really just never think about God and they never think and care what he thinks. That's the evidence of someone that's not been called. Those who wrestle with this question, what am I really called? Those are the ones who are actually called. That's the, that's like the, the, the like crazy irony of this. That, that if you wrestle with the question, that's the evidence that you actually are. Yeah, it doesn't, I know it doesn't make logical sense. But that's just the way it is. Sorry. I don't like it any more than you do. But that's the truth. Because you care what he thinks, that's the evidence that you're actually called. The other part about this is, okay, for those of you that think about this for a little while, you need to understand what these words of Jesus are and are not. Okay? These words are not about false conversions, those who said they believe but they never really did. These words are about God being more powerful than any enemy who wants to rob us from Christ. We can live in total confidence. No one can steal us from him. John Calvin's words here are just, they were just so rich and helpful to me yesterday when I read this. Our faith is weak and we are prone to wavering. But God has taken us in his hand and is powerful enough to scatter with one breath all the efforts of our enemies. It is very important for us to note this so that the fear of temptations do not overwhelm us. For Christ also wanted to show how the sheep live quietly even as they are surrounded by wolves. You can be surrounded by enemies of Christ who fight and strain with everything in their power to pluck you and steal you away from him and be at total peace knowing it ain't going to happen. They ain't got it. The other things that we do with these words is we do respond to what he's calling us into. For some of you, Our Father is calling you to saving faith, 
trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe Him and jump into His hands. For others, He is calling you into a deeper level of trust and obedience. That's the scary part. Jumping into His hands is really the easy, non-scary part. The scary part is trusting Him when He's calling us into something that looks really uncomfortable. And here, we talked about this earlier in the Bible study hour. Obedience really rolls, comes down to, boils down to trust. If I trust him, I'll obey him. And if I don't trust him, I won't obey him. He's calling you into some a deeper level of trust and obedience, something that's going to be uncomfortable. Will you trust him because nothing can take you out of his hand? And yet, some of you also, he is calling you into a special place or work that requires sacrifice and painful personal growth. The kind that makes you feel like you've been plucked out of his hand already. I had some up close and personal experience with that recently. It was unpleasant. And it did feel like I'd already been plucked out of his hand. But I held on to the truth that I was not. That I was still in his hand. And that persevering through this painful personal growth would be worth it. If you're standing on the precipice of that kind of painful personal growth, respond with, yes, Lord, I will go. Just say it. Just say it and do it. Yes, Lord, I will go. I will go to this place you're calling me to go into. As scary as it looks and as painful as I know it's going to be, I will go. But why should you go? Why do it? Why do something that's going to hurt? Because of the reward when the work is completed. Your trust in Him will expand. Your understanding and knowing, not just look, not just head knowledge of Him, but your knowing Him in a personal way will expand. You will be conformed more into the image of Jesus. That's a guarantee. And that'll be worth it. But there also is the other thing. I'll bet there's someone who's willing to walk through that painful experience with you so that you're not there by yourself. And then once you've done it, you can turn around and walk with somebody else as they go through it for the first time. I've been very grateful for the Persons who've walked with me through painful growth experiences, having already done it themselves. There's just something more comforting about another human being walking with us whom we know has done this path already. And then ultimately the reason you do it is because he calls us into it and he's not going to call us into something that is not good for us in the end. And there is nothing that can pluck us out of his hand no matter how hard it is to do. Just respond with, yes, Lord. That's it. Yes, Lord. Just those two words is enough. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this hope 
giving us this confidence that nothing can separate us from you and that we can be at peace in the midst of the chaos around us because we know nothing will take us from your hands. Let it also inspire us, Lord, and instill within us the confidence to go forward into everything you're calling us into. In Jesus' holy name, amen.